verses 19 through 27. My dear brethren, uh, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so uh, prevalent. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what, he's, what he looks like. But whoever, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word, world. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'm just going to pray real quick before Joe comes up. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. We, th we thank you for Joe and his faithfulness, Father, as he brings the word today, Father. And may you be faithful to him, that you would give him the words, that his tongue uh, would speak words of truth, your words of truth to us this morning, and that our hearts would be willing recipients. Uh, we love you and just thank you again for this time in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, happy anniversary, Refuge Church. Go ahead, clap, cheer. This, this whole service and following is just a celebration of what God has done. Amen. Um, slide. <laughs> Um, th this doesn't really match the text, the, the title of my, my message, but I kind of like the graphics. Um, the, the message is more about being right. Uh, but it's so much easier to be wrong than right, isn't it? Um, and the author of this book, Being Wrong, Catherine Schultz, has said, um, was quoted as saying, um, if it is sweet to be right, then let's not deny it. It is downright savory to point out that someone else is wrong. We all like to be right, right? Spouses, married people, you all know what that's all about. You probably have carved into the back of your kitchen cabinets who, what the tally is and, and who was right last. Don't laugh so loud there, uh, Mark. Sports fans are my next victims. You know all the statistics, and you can vigorously defend your predictions until the game is over. We love to be right. I don't know what it is. Our pride, our ego, our old sin nature. Something drives us to compete, to be more correct, more accurate, more knowledgeable than someone else, especially someone who thinks they are correct and accurate and knowledgeable. Slide, please. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Even um, in the area of religion and faith, that water went down the wrong way. <coughs> we are prone to argue and fight about the noblest of virtues, right? 
I can picture someone saying, I tell you, you've got the wrong definition of love. <laughs> People will do that. Even more surprisingly, you might be able to expect that from someone who's um, legalistic, you know, because they, they have to argue about what's right and wrong and get the facts right because de their lifestyle depends on that. But even those who are convinced that grace has abolished all moral restraints, they will have a list of verses as long as your arm to prove that they're right. Think about it. It doesn't make sense, does it? James, in this letter we've read, um, James is the half-brother of Christ, the natural son of Joseph and Mary. Um, and he was a, a, a leader in the, in the church in Jerusalem. And he's addressing believers who are facing persecution. They're scattered throughout Judea. And they're really tempted to go back to the religion and the practices that they were familiar with, that they had come out of. This whole, James and, and all of these people are very familiar with religion. They are predominantly Jews, and their life was defined by the observances and the ceremonies and the rituals that, that, that make up that whole Jewish practice in which they hope to appease God and somehow gain his favor and blessing, which is the definition of religion. Correct? It's a system of observances and practices by which one attempts to gain the favor of the God he or she believes is somehow able to grant that favor. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking little g God or gods or, or something else. Um, religion is man's attempt to please that God or to avoid its wrath. The question is that James raises in the verses we read, is that religion pure and faultless? By identifying a set of behaviors that James calls pure and faultless, he's implying that there are things that are called religion that are not pure and are faulty. In other words, there's a form of religion that is true and, a, and others that are false. There's one kind that is right and another kind that is wrong. James opens the door to that whole understanding. And it's very common in our day and age to hear someone say that what's true for you is not true for me. This way of thinking is called relativism. And it assumes that each and every one of us can have a different system of truth. Now, I learned the fallacy of relativism as a boy. I grew up in a neighborhood that was abutted by a river. Not this nice river with boats. <laughs> Not this nice wilderness river. But a little skinny, marshy river. It was a meandering, it looked more like a stream, but uh, believe me, its name was the something river. Um, it was only a few feet wide in most, of its, in most of its length. It was bordered by wide areas of marsh on both sides. The meandering main current could be followed for miles in each direction if you could get to it. But the whole thing was only a couple feet deep, maybe three feet in the open areas, if you don't count the 
bottomless muck and ooze that was beyond below the water, which, which I have had some experience with. And for most of the year, it wasn't much good for anything. It was good for birds. I think it's now a wildlife sanctuary or something like that, but it wasn't much fun. There's no, no, nothing that, that us kids could do with it. But in the winter, it became a wonderland. In the winter, it was our playground. We even had the cooperation of a lot of the adults in, in our experience out there on, on the river. Uh, for many years, someone would get a license from the town and we'd have a big bonfire with skating and hot chocolate and s'mores. But us, us boys, the experts, had to make sure that the ice was strong that the weak areas were well marked and indicated, and there was always some adult saying, well, it hasn't been cold long enough, so it's not gonna be strong, but we'd, we'd prove them wrong, and we'd, we'd find the right time to do this. So naturally, us guys, us, us kids in the neighborhood, we had developed some skill at telling the difference between good ice and bad ice. And after those many years and many dunkings and many triumphant first to cross the river or first to traverse it all the way to the next town, I can say that I have learned some things about ice. <laughs> Number one is you can have great faith in thin ice and you will get wet. <laughs> Number two is you can have the tiniest amount of faith, even being down on your belly, inching across it, and if it's strong, it'll hold you up. The end result is completely dependent on the strength of the ice, not the strength of our adolescent faith. But there's a warning, because without some degree of faith, a would-be adventurer would not cross the ice at all and would miss out on a world of great experiences. James, in the scripture we read, is telling us that religion is like ice. You didn't see that in there, but it's in there. There's one you can trust in, and there are others that are cracked, weak, untrustworthy, impure, faulty, and don't work. It's, but it's not as simple as simply choosing grace over law. It's not as simple as putting on the right team t-shirt. It's not as simple as just voting for the right party. Because law and grace are both facts. God gave the law, and God is the author of grace. Both exist, and neither can be denied. So we're dealt with the challenge of looking closely, as James says, intently at the law that gives life and finding out how do we make, how do we draw that pure and undefiled religion out of it? The Bible actually speaks of many laws. And um, in this book I've been reading, believe it or not, <laughs> it's called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It was written in the 17th century. Why he calls it modern? It's more modern than 2,000 years ago. But um, it's very interesting, and it points out a distinction in Scripture between the law of works and the law of Christ. And if as a believer 
you ever struggle with whether you're getting it right, don't forget that there, it's not a struggle against grace and law. It's a struggle between the law of works and the law of grace, the law of Christ. Just because we who are believers in Jesus and, and know him as our Savior and know that we are not justified by performing works of the law, those Old Testament rules and regulations, that does not mean that we throw off all restraint and live any way we desire and embrace a selfish or even hedonistic lifestyle. Not at all. Instead, we find ourselves under a new law, which Paul refers to as the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Let me try to give you five identifying characteristics from Scripture. I'm not going to talk a lot between it. I'm going to give you a lot of verses, which I will read, and they'll be on the screen, but I need to wet my whistle for that. <laughs> and swallow carefully. <laughs> All right. Number one, the law of Christ results in life, not death. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, there's two laws referenced there. Next. Characteristic two, the law of Christ is obtained by believing, not by doing. Galatians 3, 11 and 12, clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because righteous, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Next slide, Romans 3, 27 and 28. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, the next slide, item, item three, and item two was that the, the law is obtained by faith, but point three is that the law of Christ is fulfilled in action. It is about helping others find salvation, not about securing our own salvation. That's the fact that frees us. We're no longer working for ourselves, we're working for others. It's about maintaining a testimony and a lifestyle that will endear you to those that you need to share the glorious gospel with. That was in, in James where he says to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. More uh, on point three, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, and 23, it's a long section, so I just pulled out some of the key 
um, references to laws in there, but I'll read the whole thing to you. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. And number four, the law of Christ is a lot easier than the law of works. In Matthew 11, 28, 30, Jesus speaking says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the fifth point is that this law of Christ is completely unnatural to us. Psalm 119, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Job 5.7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And finally, Romans 7.22-24, that well-known plea of Paul's. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's not doesn't come naturally, this law of Christ. And it seems that at the very moment that we may be doing something good, like caring for the widow or the orphan, our natural inclination is to think, well, God must love me more because I'm doing the right thing right now. And when you think that, you've just stepped over the line into the law of works. We do it all the time. And it stinks. And that also is something I learned about as a boy. But even in your darkest moments, even in your th those times where you're glad no one is looking and watching, and you're tempted to think, God can't love me, not now, you're still wrong, and that thinking still stinks. We are not approved through the law of works. Nor are we condemned by not faithfully keeping a law of works. We all need to be freed from that law called the law of sin and death and be bound to the law of Christ. We are under a new covenant, but it's a covenant nonetheless. It's a two-way street. It's an agreement. Now that we are free 
from the hopeless burden of earning our own salvation, we are free. We're not just free, we are compelled to imitate the one who has given us our freedom. We love because we have been loved. We give because we have been given. We generously share what we have because he has shared his kingdom with us. Isn't that amazing? He has made us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. This is my one hope and prayer for Refuge Church on this anniversary Sunday for, for 2017 and every year following that we would each and every one find ourselves bound by the law of Christ. As I was preparing this message, I, I wanted to be right about the predominant theme of New Testament prayers for the church. So I studied hard and made a detailed list. Prayers for the church, the, the classic one is John 17, Jesus' own prayers in the Garden of Eden, are, are in the all of the garden, whatever. Gethsemane. Was it in Gethsemane? I know that's where he was turned <laughs> over. Um, but here's a summary. This, it's a big prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. He prays lots of great things. But when he specifically asks for something for his saints, they are this, that the Father would keep us in his name that we may be one, that he would keep us from the evil one or the evil one from us, that he would sanctify us in the truth, that we would be with Christ where he is and see his glory. That's a good one. I'm waiting for that one. And that the love which the Father, with which the Father loved the Son would be in us. Those are the, the specific requests that Jesus made of the Father for us. But also we have in the letters, uh, various letters of the apostles, these are the things that in stating their prayers for the church that they asked for, that we'd be enlightened, strengthened, that we would have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that we would know his love, that we would have knowledge of the hope to which we are called, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that we would have effective partnerships in the gospel and deeper understanding. And it occurred to me, with, with a, a sudden revelation and great thanksgiving, that many of these prayers have been answered. And those that have not yet been fulfilled completely are assured because of those that have been. We are here because he has given us knowledge of the beautiful gospel. He has enlightened our understanding of his grace. He has given us knowledge of the hope to which we are called. And what's more important is in Philippians 1.6, we know that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's my message for Refuge Church today. 
That's my prayer for me, for all of us. And it's a fitting theme on which to move into the communion. Jesus prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. We celebrate communion together to demonstrate that we are one through his broken body. And we are united in a new covenant, instituted and sealed in his blood. If you know those things, and you hold to them as a Christian, you're welcome to join us in communion today. If you're not sure then you should sit it, sit it out and just wait while, and while the music plays. Um, are we going to have kids coming up holding the communion? We'll have a couple of young people up front holding the elements. The music will play, and while the music's playing, just come up at your leisure. There'll be a line forming, and, and take the elements back to your seat and, and consume them while the music plays, and you meditate briefly on that. That's how we do communion here and we'd be delighted to have every believer join us for that.